Hi there, I'm Paul Mitchell, speaker and author and founder of The Human Enterprise. Welcome to Enterprise Radio, where we interview transformational leaders from business, from the community, from sport and the arts. In this interview, we're, we're talking with Tim Ebbick, who is the Managing Director of Oracle Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Tim really gets the importance of leadership and, and relationships in business and is just passionate about building engaging and meaningful workplaces, not just for the people in Oracle, but for Oracle's clients as well. Here he very openly shares some brilliant lessons on how to never stop learning, on the importance of vitality and, and how you just have to have energy as a leader, how culture trumps strategy and how that's done through building great relationships, how to build your own personal brand and how to be true to you, how to get and maintain your own self-confidence even in those tough times. So grab a coffee, grab a cake, grab a Red Bull, grab a juice, grab a Twining's tea, and I think I've tried to include as many of our clients as possible there, uh, or a wine or a beer, and, and listen to some amazing, uh, truly personal and deep lessons from Tim about transformational leadership. So Tim, great to see you again. Welcome to Enterprise Radio. Paul, thank you. Great to, uh, as always, catch up with you. Fantastic. So Tim, tell us about your current role. Uh, we know what it is, but our listeners may not know, and they may not know exactly what Oracle does, even though it's a worldwide brand. Um, where does Oracle, uh, first of all, your role, and how does Oracle add, add value to, to businesses around the world? Yeah, so, so I, I presently hold the role as Managing Director of Oracle's business in Australia and New Zealand and the, uh, the, the islands around the South Pacific. Um, so Oracle is a fascinating company. It's it's one of those organisations that's now been around for getting on to 40 years. Um, started as a little project in the CIA, actually, called Project Oracle. Um, and our founders, led by Larry Ellison at the time, took that um, took that project and productised the uh, the database that was built there uh, to become Oracle as we know it today. So it's, it's an organisation that is in the technology industry. It's a software company principally. Um, and what we do is help organisations run better every day. Right. Um, and our technologies span applications in all sorts of areas from um, ERP and human capital management and training and succession planning and development type software to um, CRM type software that helps customers stay close to their customers to marketing um, capabilities that help customers get to new customers to you know, broad um, ERP, most of it in the cloud now, most of this is so, SaaS. So basically really helping organisations know, I guess, what's happening in their, in their enterprise, tapping into the resources and really planning it as such. Can you give us an example of something like it might be a, a current client you're working with that gives a bit of a, a more specific feel about what you do in terms of one of those services? Sure. Uh, for example, the National Australia Bank, large Australian um, bank, one of the, the, the big four pillars, took on a project about... Um, five or six years ago to build a bank of the future. Um, so what they did, um, built on Oracle technology, so our database technology and our engineered systems hardware, um, expanded their footprint out to actually build a completely new core banking system. That is the, the core system that takes deposits and loans, um, an origination system, which is the system that actually originates business for them through their customers, um, and extended some of their existing uh, CRM capability to build a new way of engaging with their customers, right. all built on Oracle technology. So what does that mean? That means that for that organisation now, they have a state-of-the-art uh, system 
that is going to hold them in good, good stead for many years. Right. But it means closer engagement with customers, better knowledge of where their customers are at and what, they, what their needs are, um, a lower cost base for them, which means that they can operate more effectively, um, and, and an ability in the core systems to actually create new products for their customers um, in close to real time. Gives them the ability to actually change their, their offerings to their customers as the customer's requirement changes. So not only, I guess, transforming the experience for the bank in this case, but really transforming the experience for the customers. Yeah. Um, Tim, I know how dedicated and how important the, the, the people side of leadership and the people side of business is for you. What does it do for, and I guess you've got maybe sometimes two customers, you've got your external customer, but you've also got, if you look at them, people inside the business. So what would it do, for example, for someone in NAB, like having this having this technology, what would it do for the people inside the business, not just their customers? Well, I, I think, let, let's face it, anyone who's in a customer service-based business, and there aren't too many that aren't like that, um, the, the way people feel about the way they do their job, the, the way they are empowered to be more creative and do things without the burden of um, bureaucracy um, actually is a key factor in whether they're motivated or not. Yes. Um, so what the per the person working in the NAB will experience is a more seamless um, and transparent engagement with their customer. Uh, they will have more innovation and flexibility to um, create different opportunities for customers and align to what the customer is really looking at. Um, they'll also have a lot more ability inside the bank, subject to, you know, to, to regulatory issues and, and the bank's own you know, strategic direction and policies, to create products that target a particular market segment that differentiates them. Um, what that means is a you know, more empowered workforce. Yes. Um, and it's interesting, I, I recently did a tour of NAP, NAB's headquarters in Melbourne, and th this headquarter is very different to what you would expect of a, a traditional bank. You know, it's, it's got a monstrous big um, atrium in the middle. Uh, there's no, uh, offices don't exist in the old way. Um, there's lots of uh, collaboration space. Mm. And when you walk around the place, you, you feel this energy. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that it was purely the Oracle system that, that enabled that, but I think it's part of a transformation of a business. Absolutely. The leadership at yeah. NAB has taken this whole concept of how people work together very, very seriously. So you could say that in ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning, basically leads to enterprise resource connections. I mean, what that business is about, connection. I love the way you've talked about the burden of bureaucracy to the to the sensation of seamless connecting. And that's where I guess was the knowledge isn't in any one particular point these days. So, yeah. um, And what about your connections? How, what connect the dots for us in terms of your career? What have you, where, where did you start? I mean, to be MD of a major business like Oracle, it wasn't uh, from the go get, just a bit about your journey as a, as a, both a technician and a leader. Yeah, so um, I came from a very large family. Um, uh, so that I think is an important uh, part of my story, because uh, collaborating within a family environment was very important. Um, you know, we, we, we had a very um, loving upbringing, but you know, we didn't have money, so it was very tight. Um, uh, doing well at school and sport, particularly team sports, were an important part of my upbringing. So I, I played representative cricket and ended up, um, you know, playing first grade cricket in Sydney for many years. Um, through a golden era for my club. And I believe from memory you're a wicketkeeper, is that right? I, I, I learnt to talk um, very <laughs> constructively about the ways of the world with batsmen from my wicketkeeping days. Um, but it also taught me something that, you know, in my career, uh, as a wicketkeeper, you could take a great catch 
Um, but it was important to note that the bowler was the one that got the wicket. I could take a, you know, a leg side stumping, um, which happened every now and again, but it was the bowler who got the batsman out of the mm, crease. And yeah. my job was to actually not just... To facilitate, yeah. It was to actually facilitate outcomes for yes. the team. Um, and part of my job was to actually talk to the team as well, so get those connections going in the team. I, I was known as being somewhat noisy on the field, but it was a strategic Hard play. Hard to imagine, Tim. Hard to imagine. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your support. Um, I'm an accountant by trade, right. so I, I, I did all my university study at night um, uh, and started off in the finance world. But what I discovered was my um, pedigree in uh, finance uh, was a great stepping stone to better understand the business. And unlike... Um, some who cho chose that as a full-time full career path. I chose it as a way to better understand the business and found mm. I enjoyed myself most when I was getting closer to customers um, and influencing what happened, which sort of then took me down the path of um, you know, working on bigger deals with, with our sales force, um, understanding some of the issues closer to the customer and ended up leading me to, to uh, in companies like SAP and now Oracle to take the leadership role inside the business. It's funny you say that, 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 that uh, it's, it started with accounting. I often think that if we really, when we go to another country, to get to know that country, we, we learn the language, uh, you know, Spanish, Italian, French, whatever. The language of business is accounting, you know, a, a balance sheet, a P&L, and it's, a, it's still, it's fascinating to me that many people, even at moderate middle levels, don't understand that language. Have you done anything to sort of help people just understand the language of business and, like, and how would Oracle help uh, uh, customers do that as well? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is being a, 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 an accountant and then a CFO, spending more time at the coalface with salespeople um, did actually help that journey because, mm. you know, in real time, I'm thinking the way most of our customers would be thinking in terms of the buying cycle. Yes. Uh, because let's face it, in technology decisions in the past and, you know, still going forward, the CFO plays an important part. Um, so getting the ROI right, yes. understanding the business benefits, understanding you know the the structuring of deals is is critical. So that's why I find found spending more time at the coalface very useful for both me, but I think as importantly, hopefully more importantly for our salespeople. Um, I, I think when you look at what a company like Oracle does, uh, you know at at the end of the day, at the core of business is money and data. And you know our our pedigree is in data. You know, right. we, so all of the core records of an organisation, uh, the simple ones and the very complex ones, end up in a database. Mm -hmm. um, so what Oracle's journey has been about is you know taking that data and making it secure, which is really important for particularly in, in today's world, but also making it readily available so it can can actually be useful not just in terms of preparing historical records, but in terms of making really important and insightful business decisions. Um, in real time and on the spot. Uh, so I think what Oracle's about is actually you know, helping customers better understand their business and get a, a competitive advantage in real time through the use of data. It's interesting in that if, uh, when I was in Pricewaterhouse, what you're saying about business, we've, we did a, or whether Pricewaterhouse did, I'm not quite sure, but I remember a study on the best salespeople and we had a look at all their traits and so forth. And you'd think it would be, you know, caring about people, great listeners and so forth. The number one one was they were numerate. Yeah. 
they knew exactly what their numbers were and they and those numbers were clean in other words integrity of data so if you think about business the great businesses and many don't know exactly what their numbers are and the integrity of data is there so they can make better decisions so i guess uh that's what you're doing for businesses absolutely you've talked about your family you come from a big family um and you've talked about even early on some of your leadership roles behind the stumps What's leadership mean to you? I mean, you're running a large organisation here, of which is obviously it's a very it's a technically based organisation, but it's still a people based organisation. What's leadership mean to you, Tim? Uh, look, I, I when I was looking at um, taking a career break in the year 2012, I'd um, I'd resigned from my then employer and um, set myself up for this career break, and I woke up one morning thinking, you know, very bold move. Um, fortunate that I'm in that position to be able to do that. Um, what am I actually going to do next? And what, what struck me as um, interesting one morning, I looked in the mirror and saw um, I was advising myself on this, and I looked in the mirror and saw you know, I, I had a fool for a client. Um, so I actually went out and got some help, and I engaged myself a coach. And Good move, Tim. Everyone hear that? He engaged himself a coach. <laughs> Well, I, I think it, I actually genuinely think it was a good move because it, it, it did a couple of things for me. It brought some formality to a process that we're all good at coaching other people, but yes. when you're going through a major shift yourself, yeah, you, you don't, see it. You don't yeah. see it. The second thing, it, it actually made me go out and speak to about 40 or 50 people. And I asked them two very simple questions. You know, A, what, what are my signature strengths as, yeah. a, as a leader? Yeah. And B, if there was one or two things I did better, um, what are they so that I could become an even better leader? What I actually got back was some tremendous feedback. And I, and I asked customers, I asked partners, I asked um, my family, I asked friends, I asked some of my old sporting colleagues. I, I went quite wide on this. Um, and the feedback I got not, not just helped me define and describe myself in a different way. Um, and not in my words, in other people's words. So for me, they descri- it described my leadership um, style. You know, the first thing for me is leadership is all about followership. You, know, you, you can't be a leader if you haven't got people following you. So taking people on the journey with you is a critical part of it. Um, and you need to, to stand for something. Secondly, integrity really matters. Integrity is not just a, one of those throwaway terms. It actually means that you've, you've got to actually stand for something and um, that, that something needs to be to, to, to be something that other people recognise, um, you know, almost Mandela-like um, in the way you, you, you describe your principles and you live by those principles. Um, third one for me is uh, you've got to be authentic. Uh, you can be the best, best actor in the world, but uh, people that work closely with you know when you're, you're acting. Um, and putting on a false face um, is not a winning strategy. Uh, if you've got some strengths, play to those strengths. If you've got some weaknesses, mitigate the weaknesses, but um, be yourself. You've got to be authentic. Um, I think there's some other things that leadership uh, leaders need to have and need to be part of their leadership statement. Energy is one of those. Um, leaders need to demonstrate a level of energy. And um, you know, I was one of those silly wicketkeepers that used to run between every, every, every over. Um, and never stop moving and never stop talking, uh, even on a really hot day. Uh, now, there's good things and bad things about that, but there, there, there is an innate energy that I had that enabled yes, me to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think in leadership, you need to have that, that energy level. 
Well, I guess if you if if you don't have that, how the hell can you ever energise others? And people are looking to you for that. I think a couple of great standouts there. My grandfather used to say, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So you really have to know what you stand for, and you're quite clear on that. And what I also love about what you said is that you 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 could think you stand for it. But your brand, if you like, your leadership brand is in the eyes of followers. And what was great was that integrity, the authenticity and the energy that came through. Plus also, I mean, playing to your signature strengths as well. It's interesting also that you talk about the authenticity piece about being yourself. One of the programs we do uh, is called Why Should Everyone Be Led By You? And the main tenet of that is be more of yourself with skill. So bring as much as you can, but also do it with skill. So it's very much, I guess, uh, what you're saying regarding followership. So uh, how does that brand manifest itself today? Is it because you can have that brand and sometimes it's hard to really make that uh, come to life in an organisation? How, how are you tracking in that regard? It, it's the constant um, challenge, isn't it, of any leader uh, to understand what your brand really is understand how it's perceived by other people yeah. and, and constantly refresh it as well um, when you first come into a company people have uh, a perspective and I had that coming into Oracle yep. um, I'd worked for a competitor and uh, even down to the color of the tie I wore was a symbol of to, to some people here about whether I'd actually made the switch or I was hanging on to my my, my previous life um, the challenge for me in in for a leader in any organisation, particularly when it's going through a transformation, is to be very present, to be very visible, visible, um, not to do other people's jobs for them because it's not scalable. You know, the, the scalability of um, the change that's is critical in an organisation. It yep. needs to actually be fed into the fabric of the business. Yep. Um, so to you know to be the, the the visible image of change without having to do the change yourself is. Is really important so right now for me it's very much about how I get the change message which I've been vocal on in the business now for some time really manifesting itself in people's behavior in the business so how do you keep up that it's a great a great point because we've got the strategic and what the tactical and of course the pull of the tactical is always stronger often than the actual uplifting of the strategic it's so easy to get bogged down um, I'm wondering how you like a lot of leaders, struggle is the wrong word, but how do you keep reminding yourself to think future, think transformation rather than transactional, think strategic rather than tactical? How do you how do you keep at that level? Yet at the same time, uh, you know, as Kipling used to say, walk with kings nor lose the common touch. Yeah, look, I think I think it, it's actually about um, having some sort of cadence around it. So for me, uh, I have a Friday morning call with all my, my sales leadership. In the business that um, is quite an intense hands-on view of where the business is at and uh, it's a heartbeat of the business uh, now that I've, I've started to limit the amount of time I spend on that but you can never let go because that right. is actually staying close to the business and yep. um, it's actually keeping the cadence of the business up um, I'm spending a lot more time now with customers um, we've put in place a lot of programs in the business about um, inducting people into Oracle in a very different way because you know as much as I... Are these customers or your own team? No, yeah. our people. Yeah. You know, we, we had an issue a couple of years ago and that our turnover was quite high and you know I don't think in, in the ANZ market we weren't necessarily seen as the, the, the best place to go and work. Um, that's changed quite dramatically. You know, we've put a lot of effort into um, reshaping 
the way people think of us by getting out there and talking about it. You know, I've had a program, uh, what I call the boomerang program, where I go, go and talk to former Oracle employees and... You want to bring them back? Is that well, <laughs> that, that, that could be the outcome, yeah. or at the very least, if they're, they're, they're still in the ecosystem, and most of them tend to be, um, to just have them better understand where we're at. Yeah. Um, we put a lot of focus on uh, the induction program into Oracle. Right. So when people join here, it's not, here's your computer, here's your phone, and by the way, on Friday, yeah. I want to know where your forecast is at. Um, you know, a lot of people don't see a customer for the first five or six weeks they're here because they're now in a, in a well-thought-through structured induction program. Um, we've started a program to re-induct existing people into the new Oracle. Um, so it's creating a different conversation and different engagement, and a lot of the, the transformational stuff is embedded in those but programs. thinking about that, I mean, I think the, the technical word or the buzzword, of course, is EVP, uh, employee value proposition, never quite like that. I mean, what I like is what's it like to work around here? So what is it that you offer? If someone was coming to Oracle, we've talked a lot about what it offers customers and what you offer your, your internal um, team members of your customers, what would people get? What, what, what's the buzz around here that an ex-wicketkeeper can generate? <laughs> the first thing an ex-wicketkeeper does is, is talk more positively about things, not necessarily about the, um, the, the skills of the batsman in front of him. Um, look, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. The, the, the first thing is uh, Oracle is one of the great companies in history. Uh, and, you know, whether people um, have worked here or not, um, our customers, our partners, even our competitors would say that Oracle's done some great stuff. We've got a very large market capitalisation. We've been very sex successful in dominating most markets we play in. So you'd have to say you're working for one of the great companies. Yes. Second thing is we've got a very broad and deep technology pool. Um, and you know, that means there's lots of areas for people to um, expand their careers and horizons in. Um, so it's not. this is not a single... Uh, play organisation. There's multiple plays that go on here. I think the third thing is how do you take that great pedigree and make it appealing to people? Well, well the first thing for me is um, I, I want a number of things to occur here. I want people to have a great experience when they join the company um, because I, I talk about the ambassador program. I want someone to be an ambassador coming into the company. I want them to be an ambassador while they're here and importantly not every company can satisfy everyone's career aspirations at, at, at all the right times. No. So if they, if they have to leave and move to something else, I wanted them to leave as an ambassador, saying mm. that I learned a lot there. I had a great experience. I, you know, I was valued and I, I felt I contributed back. Um, so that, that's the ambassador spirit that I try to imbue in the place. You know, think well of the company before you come here, it. when you're here and when you leave. Um, there, there's a, you know, we, we put a lot of focus now on cross-line of business development. We have a broad product set, and I don't want people to feel like they're stuck in a particular stovepipe. Um, you know, one of the things that the technology shifts in the world, to, uh, particularly to cloud, has done is meant that there are, there's more crossover of skills um, across even within an Oracle, our different lines of business. So it means that people can move in different ways, diagonally, rather than just straight up and down. So I'll, we're putting a lot of focus on developing people inside the company. Um, and I guess the third thing is, you know, it's having a personal relationship. I, ha I have a rule inside the place that I expect every person in the company to have a meeting once a month or so with their manager where three things are discussed. One of them is, how are you? The manager asking the employee. The second thing is, how are we? How's our relationship? Mm -hmm. And the third thing is, what can I do to help you achieve what you want to achieve in your life? And I'd like to stop there. That's just, that's a real piece of gold that... Uh 
Um, and it is a, a leadership from a transformational point of view, not necessarily a transactional point of view, rewards and, and sometimes punishment uh, from a management point of view, but from a transformational point of view, it is all about relationships and how fantastic, how are you, and what I care about you, how are we, it's our relationship, and what can I do to, to help you be more successful. The other thing I really love about what you're saying is the intentionality about, like right from the go-get, when people come here, the intention is have a great experience when you first come in. Isn't that so important, that first impression? Have a great experience when you're here and have a great experience when you leave. And it, it strikes me that the name of the business, of course, is an interesting one, Oracle. In the old the Greek days, of course, the Oracle was the person that was the messenger. So what, what you're really doing is creating Oracles for Oracle, if you like, out there in the marketplace, which is which is just brilliant. They, to an extent, will be your greatest sales force further down the track. Well, they have, they have to be. And I, and I think the, you know, the world has shrunk in many respects. Um, reputation is everything. That's one of, I have 10 rules of transformational leadership, and rule number five is... You know, your reputation is everything, so you better make sure that you take care of it all the time. Mm. Um, but also implicit in, in that statement is that your reputation is not what you think it is, it's what other people think it is. So you've got to walk the talk. You can't just say, I, I want this to be a great experience and then do nothing about it. You cast it. a big shadow, don't you? People are looking at you all the time. All the time. To see if there's that personal alignment between values and behaviour. You mentioned that you have, and the way one of the ways you do it is to make sure people have one-on-ones. When we're often coaching people, it's the first thing we say, up your one-on-ones if you're not doing it and make them consistent, the cadence that you talked about. But in that, you're getting close to people. And the job of any leader is, is that balance between support and challenge, supporting but also challenging to get better. How do you walk that tightrope about getting close to people and at the same time pushing for outcomes? It's something that a lot of senior leaders uh find difficult at times. How do you manage that? Oh, they find it difficult because it is difficult. I mean, they're, they're, and there's no, there's no easy way on this one. Um, I, look, I think the first thing is you've got to have a relationship with people. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends, but you have to know what, you know, where people are at in their life, what drives them, what doesn't drive them. You know, for, for example, you know, if you look at the demographics of Western um, economies, there's no question that older people are going to be in the workforce for longer. So if, if someone says to me and they're in their 50s, look, I don't want to go to a management role, I'm really happy doing what I'm yes. doing now and yeah. I want to do it for the next 10 years, yeah. isn't that a great thing? Yeah. Um, uh, if someone who's young and enthusiastic says, I want to move around a lot so I get more, more experience, um, isn't that great you know that, um, if, that's, if that's really going to turn them on? I also have a bit of a theory about that, but that's a separate discussion. Um, but I think the first thing is you've got to have a relationship and you've got to have a mutual to understanding. find those things out in the first place. Correct. Yeah. Um, fr- from there, uh, I think you've got to be absolutely committed to um, repetition as well. You know, no one believes something once. Um, so, you know, you've got to be consistent in doing it. Yes. Now, don't get me wrong on this. I, I, do I know for a fact that every manager in Oracle does that one-on-one? Um, I know for a fact that they don't. <laughs> Some most do now, yeah. but some some still don't, and uh, you know it's just a constant journey to reinforce to people this is important, and and the lever I use is with the with the, the the staff themselves. I think you are that important. You deserve that, don't you? Expect it of your manager. Yes. You know, put pressure on both ways here. Yeah. Um, 
So I think the first thing is you've got to have those relationships. You've got to, you've got to understand uh, where the meeting of minds and how you can help people you know, realise their potential as individuals. I want to pick up on that because that's an interesting one where a lot of people go, well, you know, it's up to the manager to do it. But what inherent in what you just said there is you're saying, you know what, it's also your career too, so put pressure upwards. And one of the things we've found, I'm a bit, uh, bit peeved with some engagement scores because they're often low because they go like this. My manager gives me the resources I want. My manager talks to me about my job. The questions aren't, I hunt my manager down to get those resources. I, I insist my manager lets me know how I'm going. So often the feedback is like a passive reactive rather than proactively to, to self. And what I love what you're doing is, you're forcing people to take a leadership stand no matter what level. And Tim, I know we've done some work in, in, in that regard. How do you actually get not just downward leadership, but really upward leadership through the business as well? Yeah. Well, this is where I, I, I for many years now, I've talked about my 10 rules of transformational leadership. You know, like rule number one, nothing beats sheer competence. You know, it, it's, a, it's a personal responsibility to, keep, to be as good as you can be. To keep getting better. And get better, because the bar keeps, keeps getting raised. You know, rule number three is um, expect less of other people's leadership and expect more of your own. You know, it, mm. one, one of my guys jokingly, I hope, says to me all the time, but Tim, how can we possibly expect less of your leadership? Um, but, you know, <laughs> and, he, and they're still with Oracle after that. Oh, <laughs> so he is, because I, I, he performs. No, no, but I, and has a sense of humor. And has a sense of humor, right. um, which you've got to have as well. But, but I think, you know, that's an individual leadership thing. Everyone has the role of being a leader. Um, or, or has the opportunity to be a leader. It's not a hierarchical thing. Um, you know, rule number 10, I think, is my favourite, which is, um, you know, rules are there to be broken, so make up your own rules. Yes. Um, if you've got better ones than these ones, make them up. Yeah. Feel empowered to actually, you know, make up, make up your own rules. Well, what's also great about this too, and, and I've heard you talk about these rules before, we know, we know what the rules are. And when the other thing was that when there are no rules, people make up their own. So what you're really doing is you're quite very, very clear on your expectations. And one of the sayings we have in the human enterprise is manage expectations, not people. Here's the expectations. How are we managing against them? Um, in, inherent in what you just said then is uh, staying on top of your game. That you want, was it rule number one? That nothing beats sheer competence. So how do you do that? Here you are at MD of a major business and it's very, very tough to find the time between doing this and family and so forth. How do you keep getting better? Uh, well, it's, you're right, it's, it's tough. So I, I, I do it in a number of different ways. So the first thing is I get involved in things, professional things outside of um, my day-to-day job. So I sit on the board of CPA Australia. Um, now I sit on that board not as a, um, an accountant member, but as a, uh, a non-executive director from the outside appointed. Um, and you know, why do I do that? Uh, there is an organisation that's completely transformed itself under tremendous leadership, supported by a, you know, a great membership and a great board. Um, you know, it's no longer a, a body that just looks at accounting standards and upskilling people to a minimum level of accounting professionalism. It's got its own TV show on leadership. Um, it's had the best-selling book on Amazon for a long time now on you know, what it takes to be a leader. Um, it's a content-rich organisation that speaks of leadership, not of mm. just the, the accounting elements. So you know, that, that's important because that's living a change and transformation in a slightly different business, but the lessons are still pertinent. Um, you know, I, I, I sit on the board of the Powerhouse Museum in New South Wales. What, why do I do that? Well, 
apart from the fact it's it's interesting, it's something that honestly, my first board meeting, I thought, what do I know about museums? Nothing. Um, what I quickly learnt was, of course, there's the curatorial side of things, which is fascinating, but it's a business at the same time, and the business challenges need to be addressed. So it, it keeps me focused on thinking about how do we transform that business so that it's achieving the, you know, the, the social goodness that it's intended to provide, but at the same time staying afloat. Um, uh, so, so I get involved in things, you know, be it, you know, we had a weekender and had a, do a bowling club um, on, the, uh, on, the, on the island where we had this weekender on the north side of Sydney. You know, I got on the board of the bowling club and worked to completely transform it. Tremendous. Because it was run down, needed to yeah. be. So I, I volunteered a lot over my life. I've spent time... I see this time and time again, that the great leaders know that leadership is not just in the business, it's in the home and it's in the community. And I also uh, see that by... Unconsciously, you pick things up. Like it's interesting you talked about with the powerhouse, the curating, uh, being a curator there. What's that? That means you're looking after something for generations. Mm -hmm. You can't help but come back to your own business and say, wow, what's the generation, what's the thing that we're leaving behind here? And so I, uh, in fact, that you, and you're hanging around with different people outside of your industry that are going to change the way you think. My grandfather used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Yeah. Uh, and so what's wonderful about this is you're not just hanging with the same tribe, yeah. uh, which is great. So, Tim, uh, you, that's the, the, bowling, uh, the bowling club, I, I, I must go up there for a, for a beer one time, the, the, the powerhouse uh, on, the, on the board of CPA. How do you, uh, it's, a, it's a very busy life as it is for a lot of senior execs, how do you maintain that, that work-life balance? You talked about energy. That's really hard to get if, you, if you're flat out all the time. How do you actually have a, a, a decent amount of energy still to give to family, to give to community and to give to the business? What, how do you go about doing that? I, I, I'm actually one that hates the term work-life balance. Yeah, I'm not well big on it either. Yeah. For, for, for the reason that I once, I once heard someone in a, in a different company say, you know, people, are, people who love work, they get their life in balance and, you know, work becomes the most important thing and that's the way it should be. I hate that concept. Um, for me, how do you get balance in your life? And uh, for me, that's, that it, it's not something that's constant, it changes. You know, you know my kids are now uh, pretty well grown up, so my priorities for family are different now to what they were when they were, they were a lot smaller. Um, you know, I, I have an interest outside of work and they, and they vary. Uh, at the moment, I've gone back into boating. Um, so I love spending, you know, my weekends out on the water, um, uh, you know, having a few drinks with friends and rafting up and having a barbie and listening to some wonderful music um, and relaxing that way. Uh, at different times, I've tried different things though. So, you know, when I retired from cricket, I took up golf. Um, you know, when I got out of boating, I tried being a motorcycle um, dude and put on the fake ta tattoos. You know, I've, I've, I've always tried different things to keep me stimulated. And, and I'm a great believer in, you know, it's a throwaway line, but you know, I believe in having midlife crises early and often so that you're constantly you know, refreshing yourself. My brother, who I love, is an entrepreneur. And he says, I, the term midlife crisis is a, is a, is a, a gigantic assumption, isn't it? You could be dead tomorrow. Oh, look, it's true. It, it, and honestly, I, you know, I've got to an age now where you know, two or three years ago, I lost a very, very close mate. It was only six weeks you know, age difference. Um, I've got a brother-in-law at the moment who's, who's fighting cancer. So again, only six week age difference. You know, you, you know, life is precious. Yeah. And to say that you're going to wait 
a long time to do something. Mm. You know, it, it goes back to a philosophy I have, which is I think too many people live their life according to a have, do, be approach, which is they accumulate things. And they accumulate things like experience and qualifications and all that so that they'll be able to do more and that ultimately, ultimately they'll become something. And the problem I have with that approach is I call it heart attacks, buses and competition. You know, they get in the way. So you're better off defining who you want to be today. In the first place. Yeah, be yeah. that person in your mind. You'll yeah. start to do the things consistent with that person and ultimately I think you'll accumulate things that person has. But you've got to know who you, you want to be. You have to start with the being. It's interesting, we, we, some of our coaching is with executives who are starting to transition into so-called retirement, although they might take forward. And what they realise is that so much of their identity is just around the job. Mm. In fact, there are friends around the job and they don't have outside interest in that. I want to pick up too, and I love the, uh, in fact, a bit of a plug for a book that we've got coming out where it actually knocks the term work-life balance because inherit is the assumption here that work sucks and life's okay, so we have to balance the two out. Yet I find the most successful people absolutely love their work and they love, and, and like yourself, they bring this certain amount of uh, energy to it. Also to the pickup and the fact that it's not static, that it changes all the time. You know, you, you go from uh, young kids to empty nester, and the, and the way you uh, the way you energize yourself is is always uh, different as such. So um, you would have had, I would think, some many many big leadership challenges, which over the years, which take a certain amount of energy. Can you talk about, I guess, you know, one of those challenges which may have left you or may may initially had you in not such a good spot, and how you came out of it, and lessons for people because we're all going to have those. Yeah, I, look, I, I think one of them for me was. Um, when I left SAP, I, I intended to have a you know, have some time off. I re- I'd never taken time off in my career, and my wife and I hired a, a motorhome, and we started um, seeing a bit of Australia we'd never seen before. And I got a call from a headhunter about um, a role at the NBN, and I'd been a bit of a vocal critic of the NBN, not not the concept, um, not so much the execution, more about the fact that I got sick and tired of people talking about broadband is the most important infrastructure project in Australia when I saw things like water as far more important mm. you know we mm. to create a sustainable future for Australia we need agriculture to be honest yeah um, I wish you know someone had come up with the idea of spending 40 billion dollars in watering more of Australia so we could feed more of the world now there's a there's a lovely leadership position for you listeners. well yeah. I, I, I think it's important you know digging holes has been great but we should have filled them with water um, but anyway, when I went to the NBN, I, I discovered an organisation that had a very difficult task, had policies um, that defined how it did, did, did what it had to do rather than directionally what the outcome should have been. Um, and it was a, you know, a very difficult organisation. I have to say I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, the thing that gave me relief at the end of it was when the, the, the government changed and I, I was asked to lead by the incoming minister, the um, and the board, the, the, the first strategic review of the NBN. Now, that was cathartic for me because it actually enabled me to take a chapter in my career that I, I had to admit I didn't enjoy that much, mm. um, put it into context and come up with some constructive ways to move this organisation forward that you know, I think you know, went the, the straight down the middle line between the old approach and the incoming government's approach and mm. gave, a, gave a direction. And I, I, I honestly... You know, it was a great way to end my chapter because it ended on a high yes. for otherwise an experience that 
And I wanted to focus in Australia, on Australia, and I thought this was a good thing to do, but it turned out to be not as enjoyable as I'd hoped. So there's a couple of things there, and once again, real strong leadership for listeners. First of all, yeah, I mean, when you serve lemons, make lemonade, but what you did was you were able to turn that energy into into something really, really important, and you made the most of that. We often tell leaders when things are bad or business isn't, isn't too good, or even personally, what's the gift here? And what you saw is you saw that as a gift and a, and a way of making a contribution. The other thing too here is just uh, that I find leaders are just like yourself are always thinking bigger picture. You're thinking about the watering of Australia, you're thinking about agriculture. Um, how, how would you encourage young leaders to think a bit bigger? Because often they start thinking technically and they often think the next uh, rung in the ladder or the next position and they get attracted to the next company with the dollars. How do we actually help our younger generation of leaders to, to, to think bigger and to think beyond themselves? I, I did something yesterday, and it, it's an answer to your question, but with a bit of a tangent. I I went out and got myself uh, one of those Samsung virtual reality oh, headsets, brilliant. and I uh, I tried it for the first time yesterday. And my wife videoed me last night, um, looking um, I won't use her words, but looking somewhat um, weird, in sitting in a lounge chair, looking around myself and underneath um, underneath the chair as I saw this new world um, around me with all the different apps you can now you know use on these tools. Um, why, why do I say that? There is so much information out there to broaden the horizons, um, and, and you really have to look around to find it. Uh, so the first thing I, I you know I, I think is really important is to be informed. It doesn't mean read everything, because that's impossible. Um, but it does mean stay in touch with where thinkers are. You know, if it, if it's a matter of going to LinkedIn and following a few of the, you know, their top two hundred international um, LinkedIn influencers. Um, if it's a question of networking, you know, I'm a great believer that nothing mm. beats going and um, out of your comfort zone and going to try different things. Um, it's one of the volunteering things that I've always done is just try different things. Um, and I think that's a great lesson for people. Go out and get into an environment that's different to what you're doing day to day and just find out the way other people think because they don't all think the same. Um, the, th- the third thing is, and, and it's probably a lesson in life <laughs> that I discovered, and it's not meant to be a, um, a negative on other people, but you know, when I was coming up, I had these big images of business leaders um, and I remember going to meeting after meeting when I was coming up through the ranks, meeting you know, at times CEOs of big companies, and, and I discovered something. They're human beings. They're fragile. You know, they wake up in the morning and do the same things as the rest of us. Um, and what they're looking for is ideas. They're looking for fresh energy. So if you're going to influence these people, you need to have two things, ideas and fresh energy. Um, and it's not going to be more of the same. Um, I remember sitting in one one CEO's office many years ago and the company that I was I was engaged in at the time, this is back in the early 90s, the parent company got into some financial trouble so we were looking at selling this particular part of the business. And I was sitting in a CEO's office and he said, look, I like the business, I love the what it does, but you know, why would I buy this when I've got 3,000 people who work for me in this company who could do exactly the same stuff? And I stood up, I was, you know, he might have thought I was rude. Um, I thought I was a bit bold, but I stood up and I walked over to his window and looked behind his curtains. 
And then I opened one of his cupboards and looked in. And he said, Tim, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to find where all these 3,000 people are because they're not the ones sitting here in front of you with the idea. You know, be bold. You know, give it a shot. Brilliant. Yeah. So, so I think you've, got to, you've got, actually got to back yourself at times and it's going to scare the hell out of you the first few times you do it. But, you know, well, I, I guess that's a, that's a great thing for anyone who's in a... And, of course, anyone can lead from any chair, but what do we really want? Not just in organisations, but we need it in the world. We need ideas and we need the energy to sort of make the ideas come to fruition. How do you do it? You do it by keeping informed, uh, you do it by networking and getting different perspectives, um, and, 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 and you do it by actually knowing that everyone is vulnerable uh, in some way. And that means, therefore, if we follow that reasoning, that even Mr. Tim Evick is vulnerable in, in some regards as well. Yeah, so you, you talked about playing to your signature strengths, and of course, uh, through our research from London Business School, why should anyone be led by you? We know that leaders n know they have allowable weaknesses and they they make sure that they intentionally manage those. So, Tim, it's a very personal question, but what are some of those vulnerabilities that you have and, and how do you manage them within the context of the team? Look, I, I don't think there's anything more important than telling people what your weaknesses are. Um, and uh, you know, I learned a lesson when I first took over running SAP. I we had a, a development course on. It may actually be one, being one of yours, Paul, um, yeah. that you were running at the time. But I was asked to talk to people about um, you know, what, what my leadership brand really was. To be honest, I stood there when I was asked to first do this, and I, I sat down and said, well, I've got no idea. <laughs> I hadn't actually put a lot of thought into it. And I did some study. Um, I went to Harvard and did some research mm -hmm. online. And... It was my first attempt to actually reveal my strengths and my weaknesses. And the first thing I did was people, I, I shared my vulnerabilities. Um, you know, there's a thing called the imposter syndrome. Yes. That yeah, well. I suffer from um, a lot. You know, I'll be sitting on stage or standing on stage about to give a speech or make a statement or something. And that I'm, I'm waiting for someone to stand up the audience saying, you've got no idea what you're talking about, you're talking rubbish. Um, and, and it happens to me all the time. Uh, I shared that with people. I shared with them you know, that I didn't have all the answers and it, it scared, worried me that I didn't have all the answers but I needed help. Um, I think sharing your vulnerabilities, knowing what they are, and we all know what they are, um, it, sharing them with other people is, one, I think, one of the greatest strengths you can possibly have. Um, it engages people. It also let them, lets them know because your weaknesses will also tend to be associated with your hot buttons, the sort of things that you might emotionally react to. Um, if, you, if you share them with people... They've got a better understanding of you. Um, you've actually turned a weakness into something that other people can help you on. Mm. Um, and you're, not, you're seen as authentic because you're not actually saying, I've only got strengths, I've got no weaknesses, because no one's like that. Absolutely. We, we found that, uh, once again, it's London Business School research that vulnerability actually builds rapport. And your vulnerability, if stated up front, becomes someone else's significance. So, for example, if you weren't particularly good at a, an aspect of marketing or whatever, and someone else can come in and do that, that not only are they compensating for your deficit in some way, but it's making them feel significant. Great little thing for listeners there could be when you're first having a conversation, we talk about show people your vase, which in which you've lost them. And vase is talk about V, one of your values. 
Here's the value I stand for. A, talk about one of your allowable weaknesses. Here's uh, um, S, talk about one of your strengths. And E, share part of your personal and professional experience, just as Tim has done here. So if you're, if you're wanting to get a quick connection with people, it's a great little mnemonic to uh, to remember. So, so um, and do you think if I went out, out the corridor here, Tim, and asked people uh, uh, what are Tim Epic's vulnerabilities, they'd be, they'd be pretty clear on them? Oh, look, I think they'd be very honest about them. You know, right. I, you know this is a big organisation. Um, I try to touch um, as many people as I possibly can. So whether it's you know, having a good relationship with the gentleman who looks after our uh, facilities here, even you know, the, the mail and the deliveries and all that, yeah. um, or it, any of our salespeople, uh, you know, they're, they're all going to have their views. Yeah. I, I, still, I still get blown away even in this organisation, and it's true in most people do tend to step back a little bit when they see you walk past, yeah. which I, I find quite, um, I, I, I find it quite confronting because as far as I'm concerned, I'm just Tim, but people think of your t- title actually still means a lot to people. Well, I'll come in there. I think of, uh, of the many CEOs, MDs that we know, you would be uh, least on it. I've been here several times and I, I just love the way from person in the canine or the person at the front desk, uh, uh, you know, smile when you approach and you've always got something to say, you know something about them. I think I think that, that degree of connection is just so important. Let's just take it up to a, an even larger level, even beyond Oracle, or at least to APAC. Uh, we, we, we're in challenging times. Like the term I've heard recently is hyper-complexity. Hyper We've got some really, as they call, wicked problems here. We have... We have uh, we have a lot of poverty still in the world. You mentioned the water problem we have. We have some economic issues. We have Europe uh, struggling. We have China struggling. We have quantitative easing in the states. Uh, we have the mining downturn in Australia and the issue with China in terms of infrastructure. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. So in terms of that environment, what do you see as the biggest things influencing APAC and what can we do as leaders to stay strong, to stay resilient? Yeah, look, I think that the first thing is it doesn't matter what business you're in, it doesn't matter where you sit, in times of massive change, and one of the things that I think I'd add to your list is disruption, because there is technological disruption going on all over the place at the moment. Um, be very focused about the few simple things that you've got to do really well. I, I describe it to people inside the businesses, you can't do everything, so be prepared to drop some balls, and the best way to drop a ball is to put it on the ground, right. um, not smash it. Rather than letting it you know, Rather, pull out of your hands. Yeah, so control I... Control the dropping. Control the dropping. Um, I never tried to do that as a wicket keeper, although my teammates <laughs> would probably say I did it too often. But I, I think it's important to focus on the things that are really important that you must get right, and place other ones down so that you're not trying to do too much. Um, second, second thing is the interactions between different economies is such that um, whilst on one hand there's the opportunity for standardisation to occur, the second opportunity is it's in times of difficulty that innovation actually occurs. Mm. You know, if you look in history, um, you know, organisations that really grow and thrive, the ones that are game-changing are ones that have been founded or did their growth spurt through a period of difficulty. So I think now is a time to innovate wow. and differentiate. Now is not a time to batten down the hatches necessarily. Um, so for example, in, in a company like Oracle, 
you know, we've got an absolute commitment right at the moment to dominate the cloud. We want to win the cloud war. Um, and there will people say that we're coming in late or that we're, you know, we're not as advanced as some. And in some cases, that's true. In other cases, I think the market is just starting. So I don't think we're coming in late. Let's face it, Apple didn't invent the MP3 player. They just no, grew no, it to yes. a size that no yeah. one had ever been to. So I, I think you know, now is the time to double down and focus on the things that are really, really important because it's in this time that you'll actually uh, get the competitive advantage. You know, it's only when people have got their back up against the wall by and large that they really do things differently. It's interesting, are you, even in medicine, I know that it's sad as it is that a lot of medical breakthroughs come through in times of war because we, we, we haven't got the time to see if a particular technique or, or operation will work, we just have to do it. And also the Chinese, the concept of crisis is two symbols, one is opportunity and one is problem. And I also love the word emergency. The first part of emergency is emerge. So when we have an emergency, what's going to emerge out of it? And I suppose uh, for listeners, what's important here is to keep uh, to keep pushing that message um, as the oracle in your own business. Yes, we might be going through some tough times, but this is a time where new things can emerge, where it is possible, and we need the thinking that you've talked about before. I want to take it back to the, the to the, back to the home front, and I guess, and also to the future. Um, if you had to leave um, your kids, and I know how important family is to you, and you've come from a large family yourself, as a leader, as a human being, if there was messages you'd want to leave your kids, um, what would they be? Maybe maybe three key points that if you if you can get these points, you'll have a good life, and you'll also have an opportunity to lead and make a contribution. What would they be? Hmm. Great, great question. Look, I think the first one is that my comment before, have a, have a good idea of who you want, really want to be in this world um, and be true to that idea. It doesn't mean the idea won't change, but identify who you want to be and, and, and start being that person in your head today. Um, the second thing is you're never alone. Um, so whether it's friends, whether it's in business with partners, um, make sure you've got lots of connections out there because uh, I think that the networking concepts are so important um, whether it's for support when you're you know you're feeling ill or whether you need someone to drive you home if you've been to the pub and had too many to drink or whether you need to toss around a business problem when you feel like you don't know yeah. what to you do you don't have to make it on your own you don't have to do it on your own um, and the third thing to me is you know back yourself um, you know this the whole concept that other people are better or more advanced or more sophisticated um, isn't necessarily true at all. You know, you, you, you've got to have some self-confidence and the best way to get, get self-confidence in my, my eyes is to try. Mm. You know, you, you can't read self-confidence in a book. No. You know, you've got to do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of that is, are we going to do everything perfectly first time? No. Has anyone? No. <laughs> Did Bradman, you know, learn how, to, learn how to bat by going out and just batting and doing nothing else? Of course he didn't. Did Mandela... Um, you know, have all the right answers up front? Probably not. <laughs> you know, he spent a lot, had a lot of time yes. to think about it. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, when he came out of he exactly. prison, he came out with prison and did something that people thought was not possible to the United Nation. Yeah. I love that. I mean, and I see those points all interspersed. How do you know who you are? Well, you know who you, how you are 
often in relationship to others. So hanging around others gets you clearer on who you are. I love the fact that although, yes, we're competing, but the new currency is collaboration. Collaboration with clients, uh, collaboration internally. And the other thing, once you do that, and the more you do that, the more you have that strength to back yourself and to make a, a real, real difference. So, Tim, as we as we come to the, I guess, the, the, at the end of this, is there any other... I guess uh, pearls of advice for the many listeners that that were, are thinking about their own leadership and what do they do next. I mean, what I'd like you to do is to issue an assignment, if you like, to people. What would it be? The assignment for our listeners. Okay, you've heard all this. Here's the one thing I'd like you to do next week. Here's the one thing. Like we're very very strong in our coaching to try to get people to pin down behaviours at the end, as you as you're aware of. So what would that be? What would the assignment be for leadership? I, I think it, it goes to the, the one of my 10 rules, which is expect less of other people's leadership, expect more of your own. Leadership is not about hierarchy. Yeah. It's about having a position, having a belief, taking other people on a journey. Yeah. So my, my, my key thing was to accept the mantle of leadership and in whatever that means at this time in your circumstances um, and be that person. You know, be that leader today. Yes. Um, expect less of other people to do it. Expect more of yourself to do it. It's yeah. a personal responsibility to, to lead. And it's not a, it doesn't matter what your business card says. It doesn't matter, you know, what, where you sit in an organisation from a traditional hierarchical perspective. Yeah. That's not what leadership is. Leadership is about who you are and how you handle things. So identify the, 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 the leadership style you have, the leadership statement you want to make, and be that person today. Yeah, what a what a great way to end. And uh, you know, rather than looking at you know who you'd like to change or you know, what needs to change, change yourself, change yourself, or change the system. And and just in doing that, you may just influence people to change the way they operate. I think, Tim, been an absolute pleasure. I love talking to you about leadership, about Oracle, and, and about I guess just some of your philosophies on life. And, and wish you and the Oracle team uh, nothing but uh, great stuff for the future. Paul, thank you. And as I've said to you in the past. Um, never cease to uh, understand the impact you have personally on people's lives. You're one of the most impactful human beings that I've ever met in my life. So, more importantly, thank you. No, it's an Tim, obvious it's pleasure, pleasure to, to know you. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, that, and uh, you know, I, and I hope that we can get your message out there to more and more leaders. So, great to see you again. Thanks, Paul. Wow, you really get a sense of the energy that Tim projects as an incredible leader as an authentic human being. So now, as Tim says, it's your turn to double down, to focus on the things you must get right, to make your commitment to, to truly innovate and to do things differently. Time to back yourself. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Tim Ebbick, the Managing Director of Oracle, and I hope you're enjoying this series of interviews on Enterprise Radio. I'm Paul Mitchell. Until we meet again, find the passion, develop the skills, make the numbers, and make a difference. 